It is a great blessing to be with you again uh, this morning. For those of you who uh, uh, were not here when I came, I think it was in March, um, I am the executive director for the Colorado Baptist General Convention, and I have been so now. I am a seasoned veteran of seven months. December 1st is when I came, and so we've traveled all over the state. And uh, as I said, and I said in the first service, I am grateful to Pastor Chris for inviting me back. You know, you can be invited anywhere once. But even more impactful to get a second invitation. So was, I'm just I'm thrilled to be here. I'm also very excited. Thank you, Brother Jay, for all that you do in your worship ministry. I mean, what a powerful worship ministry. The choir and the orchestra, or the praise band, the orchestra. But the bells, now where Sally and I were seated, we got to see really only Jonathan and all the bells that he had out here. And we're convinced that he could hang wallpaper with one arm tied behind his back. I mean, I play the radio. That's the only musical abilities that I have, and so I'm in awe of that. Well, it is, it, it, I'm excited to be here uh, this morning, and I want you to take your Bibles with me, and I want you to turn to a familiar passage to most of you. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And while you're finding that, and I'll read that here in a second, if, our, if our, my text is a little bit different than yours, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Um, Brother Jay, you'll know this, that I, I own the distinction of being the only person in, in the church that I pastored last of being asked not to be in the choir. So, Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> well, okay, I'll just let that go. <laughs> Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Follow along with me in your text. And a lawyer stood up to him and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law, and how does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came, up, uh, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come to You this morning, we thank You for the worship that we've experienced. We thank You, Lord, for the blessing of being together in the fellowship that we have experienced here. 
Lord, I pray that as we look at Your Word, as we, we take this time, that the Spirit will move upon all of us, that we will be people who have been changed by being here in the presence of the living God. That we will be people who will take the lesson that we learn, not just that we gain more information or that we learn something or see a perspective that we've not seen before, but that, Father, when we leave here, we will leave compelled to put these things into practice. We pray, Lord, Your blessing upon our time. May You teach us this morning. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to just share just briefly with you as we begin uh, about uh, in that seven months that I've been here, we've traveled all across the state. We've gotten to see Colorado in the context. And, and um, you know, I think I shared with you, I came from California, but very quickly I, I have to share, I grew up here, right? So don't hold California against me. I grew up here. My wife is a native of Boulder. But we've, we've traveled and we have seen Colorado ministry in its context all across the state, put on almost 40,000 miles in seven months of, of visiting with churches and being, uh, being in different uh, places in the state. And we have, we have transitioned or tweaked our mission statement at the Colorado Baptist General Convention. Our mission statement states that we exist to partner with churches and associations for accelerated gospel impact. Because one of the things that I experienced in California as a director of missions for almost 10 years was the, was the power of the local boots on the ground impact that can be made with churches. And so we have been a part of that. And the Colorado Baptist General Convention several years ago uh, changed its, its, um, its logo to say Colorado Baptists. And when I heard that, and as I heard people speak about that, they, they began to talk about Colorado Baptists and referring to the convention office. And I said, that, my goal is that when people within our convention, churches within our convention, hear that term, they think of themselves. Because folks, if we have learned anything as Southern Baptists, it's been this. We are better together than we are by ourselves. Amen? We can reach more people with the gospel. We can do more for ministry as we work together. And so I hope, my prayer is that when you hear that word Colorado Baptist, you think of yourself because we are all Colorado Baptists. One of the other things that is a great passion for, my, for me has been coming alongside churches that invite us in to be a part of helping them think through their mission and their mission field. For, for if a church understands its mission, but doesn't understand its mission field, then its gospel approach may be outdated. How many of you in here remember when the strategy for children's ministry in church was to buy a school bus? Let's just see hands. All right. So this is great because there are going to be some of you that are just going to be aghast at this approach. Churches used to buy school buses and they would go into underserved areas of the community and they would draw kids. Kids would get on the bus and they'd bring them to church and they'd minister to them and they'd feed them many times and send them back home. But listen to this. Many times parents in the neighborhood had no idea who we were. And they gave us their kids. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It is a... 
That was an approach that was effective. Listen, if you had a school bus, you were in children's ministry. And if you had a guitar strapped on your shoulder, you were leading that ministry in the 70s and 80s. But we don't do that anymore, do we? Why is that? Because parents wouldn't give us their kids today. And so an outdated approach doesn't yield the fruit in gospel ministry that it should. So it's important to understand your mission context, your mission field. But at the same time, it's important for a church to understand its mission. You see, you can understand the culture and the context all around you, but if you don't understand the power of the gospel is, is in the work of the Holy Spirit, and you try to do that work, it'll, it'll be a failure. It won't have the power that it's intended to have. And so it's important for all of us to hold these things together. You know, the church is called and sent out into the world to intersect lostness. The sentness of the gospel mission is clear in both Testaments. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 7, it is the Lord who asked the question, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? There, the missio day, the mission of God is to send his people out into the world. In the New Testament, in the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, the text says, Go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations. There again is that message of going. But here's what I want you to hear I don't want you to hear me saying that coming to the church facility is a bad thing, I think it's a great thing. I'm not advocating for one over the other. What I'm saying is there is an importance about both and. And it's exciting to see your commissioning of this Ecuadorian group going over to minister in Ecuador. But it's important that all of us catch that flame and understanding that we have all been sent into the world to be ministers for the gospel. So, so when I was pastoring, and I pastored for almost 18 years before becoming a director of missions and then executive director... And as I was pastoring, I, I sought ways to try to communicate with congregants that all of us who are born again have been called into something. All of us. God has set a uniqueness in us and has called us out of the world and has called us into ministry. And so he used to use this terminology. Every member is a minister. But as I began to see that fleshed out in people, what I began to see happen was that that unless they saw a context within the, the church facility, they felt left out. In other words, unless they could teach a Sunday school class or be a deacon or, or um, you know, lead a ministry group or even watch children in the nursery, they just didn't feel there was a place for them to fit. And yet God's called all of us. And so it was that the Lord began to reveal that, that a better picture is that all of God's children are missionaries. All of God's mission children are sent out into the world. Let me give you a definition for missionary. I think it's in your outline, but it is that a missionary is someone who leaves his or her context, that is what's familiar to, to him or her, to reach a person in their context. It's easiest for us to see that, like with this group that's going to Ecuador, right? They're leaving the confines of the United States. They're going to Ecuador, which is not, I don't know any of them, but I'm guessing it's not their culture. And so they're leaving their culture and comfort level and going to someone else. But the reality is all of us can do that. Our mission field is not just across the water, 
but sometimes it's across the street. I spoke to a man after the first service this morning who's an Uber driver. And he is a missionary to those people that he picks up and he drives. And he surrenders himself to the Lord's leading. And he was sharing with me how he shared the the gospel with someone that he picked up. He's utilizing that skill. All of us have that ability to leave our context. Now let's let's talk about what our context is. Um, uh, George Barna said that most Christians, and again we're speaking in generalities, most Christians that have been believers for 10 years only have Christian friends around them. They don't have any connections with lost people. Christians are, are, are their only friends. And unless we're intentionally, uh, we're extremely intentional about that, we can find that we become insulated from the world rather than being out and reaching people in the world. And so this morning, as we, as we look at our text, it's important for us to, to understand or see the example of someone who stepped out of their culture or their context to reach someone else in their context to help them in their time of need. You know, folks, I don't need to tell you that we live in a very divided world, Right? And, and we live in a culture that's not the same as it was 20 years ago or even 30, or 30 years ago. You know, there was a time when the world held the values that are taught in Scripture. And whether or not someone was a believer, probably grandpa or grandma drugged them to church when they were kids, and, it, and something about that resonated with them that that's important to do. And so by the time even young adults started having children, they began to think, well, we, we should probably expose our kids to church, and they began going to church and taking their kids with them. They felt that was their duty. That's not happening anymore, is it? People aren't looking for church anymore. But, but know this, there are still people who are seeking spiritual answers. There's something about God's wiring within all of us that there is a longing for that component. They just don't know what it is. And so it's important for us to be people that are willing to go out to show those that are around us the love of Jesus in practical and tangible ways to use the, the opportunities we have to touch, to build relationships, to grow with people outside the walls of the church. Alan Hirsch was the first one that I read that heard say this, was that if our only attempt to do evangelism is to invite people to come to us, And again, I'm not saying it's wrong to invite people to Easter service or Christmas programs or things like that, but if that's our only offering to reach out to people who are lost that are not in our Christian context, what we're really asking lost people to do is be the missionary. And that's backwards. And so it's important for us to look at that. So I want us to take a look at our text this morning, and I want us to look at this example of one who stepped outside of his context to reach others, to reach another in his context. Now, we're going to start in verse 25 because that's the, that's the context that sets up the parable proper for us. But I want you to, to do me a favor. Don't run ahead, even in your mind. Don't run ahead to the end of the story. Okay? Let's walk through the text together. Let's experience it anew together and see what Jesus teaches us about the importance of reaching out to others. Verse 25, we are introduced to the the context here. It says to us that a certain lawyer 
stood up to put Jesus to the test. So here's what we need to understand about the context, that this man is not interested in the right answer. This man's only interest is finding a way to trap Jesus. Okay? And so he asks this question. Here's his trap. Jesus, what teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To which Jesus responds in verse 26, not answering him directly, but asking two questions. Now, Jesus already knows this man's heart, right? But he is asking these questions so this man will probe his own heart and his own motives regarding this question, regarding this approach. And so here's what Jesus asks. He asks two questions. What is written in the law and how does it read to you? And here's what I submit to you that he's, he's really asking is, what is your interpretation of the law? In other words, do you think correctly about what the law teaches? And the second piece is, what is your application to the law? In other words, are you living correctly based on your interpretation? So it's this, do you think rightly about these things? And are you doing something about it? Are you making that a part of your life? And the lawyer responds in verse 27 with the Shema, which is the powerful, this is the doctrinal statement of Jews in the first century. In fact, even today, out of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, and the combination says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now just naturally, when you look at those things, you see there is a vertical connection that is supposed to have a horizontal application. Vertical connection, horizontal application. And Jesus' response in verse 28 is, you have answered correctly. In other words, his thinking about these things is true. That's right. That's what God intended. That's what we're supposed to be thinking. But then he challenged the lawyer with his application by saying, do this and you will live. At this point, the tables have been turned on the lawyer. Now he's the one that's trapped, trying to trap Jesus. And so he's trying to get out of this, um, out of this predicament that he finds himself in. Now I asked earlier in the first service if there was a lawyer in the room before I said what I'm going to say next. And I've already been told there is, so I'm going to move on. <laughs> nothing bad, nothing bad. But here, here's what he said. So the, the lawyer... Ask the question, and who is my neighbor? He's trying to get out of the, the problem. He's trying to get out of the situation. Asks, who is my neighbor? Let me see if I can say this a different way. It is that he's asking this question, and who is the person outside of my context? In other words, who is the person that's not like me that I should love and care for as I do myself? And so Jesus begins the parable in verse 30. This is the parable proper. Everything that follows is Jesus' answer to that question, who is my neighbor? Verse 30, he says, And a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. It was familiar to Jesus' hearers the danger on this road between Jerusalem and Jericho. It was a windy road. It was a road that, that housed places where robbers could hide and people had been uh, overcome by robbers and beaten in the past and, and they've been uh, uh, stolen from. But what's really important here is not that this road is dangerous. 
What's important here, what, what I think Jesus' point is, is the description that you find of this individual who's fallen into the robber's hands. In other places where Jesus teaches principles, he, he speaks so in general sense because people already understand the picture and the culture of the day. But here he goes to great lengths to give a vivid picture of this man's condition and in fact, what this man looks like. So I want you to think through this with me. It says, the robbers stripped him, that is, he's laying on the road naked. The robbers stripped him and they beat him which means he's probably bleeding, and they went off leaving him half dead, which means he's probably not moving. So now what's the point and purpose for Jesus' description like that? I submit to you that his purpose is that no one in their right mind could come by this man who is naked and bleeding and not moving in the middle of the road and say, I think you'll be okay. It is to demonstrate there is an obvious need with this man that no one could question. Are we all together on that? No one could question. Everybody that came by him should be able to see this guy has a big need and a need of intervention. So let's go on. Verse 31 tells us that the first traveler comes by and this man is a priest. By chance, a priest was going down on that road. Now, there's a couple of things here. Priests obviously were serving at the temple, but the idea of going down on that road is literal. The elevation difference between Jerusalem, which was at higher elevation, and Jericho, which was at lower elevation, was 3,300 feet over 15-mile span. So when it says that he was going down on that road, it literally tells us the direction he was headed. He was leaving Jerusalem, now headed to Jericho. Most likely, he had just finished serving at the temple and was now headed home. The second traveler that we find is that, in verse 32, is that of a Levite. Now, Levite was of the priestly tribe as well. He would have had secondary responsibilities at the temple. And this... This account is almost exactly the same as the first. Although it doesn't tell us the direction he was going, the verse begins by saying likewise, which indicates to us that he probably was headed in the same direction. So why is all of that important? Here's what I think is is building to this climax. Is that these two men, most likely, had just finished serving at the temple. Just finished serving in the presence of holy God. Anytime we read in the Old Testament or New Testament of God falling on someone, of God, of, of someone being called into God's presence, there is a radical transformation that takes place in the life of that individual. But here it indicates to us that these two men, just finishing service at the temple, just serving in the presence of Holy God, on their way home, come across this man who is naked and bleeding and not moving, and they step right past him and they go their way. In fact, in both counts, the text says, and they saw him and passed by. So I'm going to see if I can give you an, an illustration of this in our context today. Imagine that you are here in worship and Pastor Chris has preached an inspiring message about helping people in need. 
In fact, so inspiring that there have just been volumes and, and volumes of amens coming from the, the, the seats. They, you're in agreement with Him. You are inspired with Him. You're inflamed to go out and help those people who are in need because of what you've heard. And then you walk out to the parking lot to your car, and there is a man laying by the driver's side door who is naked and bleeding and not moving. And you open the driver's side door and step over the body and get into your car and put it in reverse and drive away. Because after all, we have to beat the Methodists to buffet. Right? To lunch. As ridiculous as that may sound to you, that is exactly the scenario that's taking place in this text. They walk by the obvious need of this man who was there. As Jesus' listeners would have heard him tell this story and would have heard a Levite's coming, they would have thought in their mind, oh, there's hope. Well, he, or the priest, and he passed by. And now a Levite, and he passed by. And now the third person to pass by is a Samaritan. You just almost feel their countenance fall, right? Oh, Samaritan. Because the Jews and the Samaritans, this was mutual hatred. Not just that the Jews didn't like the Samaritans, the Samaritans didn't like the Jews, and most likely this man's Jewish. But the Samaritan who comes along is a man who stops and he does something to help this man. In fact, in verse 33 it tells us that he came across this man and he felt compassion for his need. That's great empathy welled up. A, a compelling empathy that welled up within this man. In fact, the word that is translated as felt compassion is a word that means to identify with another person's situation to such a degree that action must be taken. He could not take his eyes off of him. He could not walk away because he saw this man's great need. He was filled with compassion for this man. And it is that he... He is the example that the Lord Jesus holds up of what does it mean or who is a neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Who is it that I need to help? And here the Samaritan stepped outside of his context, outside of his cultural context, to help a sworn enemy to care for his needs. And not just to care for his needs. Two denarius would have been two days of wages for a common man that day. And he not only does that, doesn't just take this guy from the parking lot in the church and put him in his car and drop him off at the emergency room and say, here, I've done my job, which would be a help, right? But he said, and I'm going to come back. And if you have spent any more on this man, I'm going to pay that amount. So Jesus, in verse 36, turns back to the lawyer. Your translation may call him a scribe. But the lawyer, and say, now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor in the hands to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he has no answer but to say, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus goes back to his application point that he, was, that he spoke earlier where he says, go and do the same. The component, the application component of of being out in a world and touching the lives of those who are different than us, that are not like us, that are, that are not in our culture, that are not in our Christian context, is, is compelling. It's, it's overwhelming here. This is what the world needs to see from our, from our churches today. Not just what we say, 
but what we do. I shared in the earlier um, uh, service that, that Alan Hirsch broke up uh, three different eras in Christian history. The first was uh, about 100 to uh, about 300 AD, the time when Constantine came. And, and the Roman Empire was at the center of culture. They were the gatekeepers. They were the ones that said who is in and who is out. And, and they made the rules. And the church was persecuted for much of that time. And they stood on the outside, had no advantages whatsoever. And yet the church served its way into culture. The church began to minister to people's needs as the platform that it used to begin to speak the gospel truth, to begin to share the importance and the love of Jesus in practical and tangible ways. From that time of 300 to what we would call the postmodern era, the church then kind of flopped. The church began to build cathedrals and basilicas, and the church began to, to be the center of culture. Everything revolved around the church. It revolved around faith. It revolved around uh, the facilities there. In fact, there were times when the church was so powerful that it told people they were in or they were out when it came to going to heaven. If, if they followed the rules they were in, if not, they were out. And the church stopped going out and serving into culture and just said, we're here if you want to know something about Jesus or you need help, you come to us. And then a shift began to take place again after the post-modern era where the church began to move or be relegated to the outside again. And now individual ideologies really are at the center of culture. As a people, we understand that there are no absolutes and all of those things that go on. This is the, the culture that we find ourselves in. And the church is now on the outside. And yet, sometimes, the church operates as though it were still in the center. Like, we, we've opened the doors and we've turned on the lights, you come. But people aren't coming. And we've got we've to go back to thinking about what the first century did and how they ministered out into culture, how they went out into the world. They were never supposed to stop doing that, but they did. And so now we've got to begin going out. And, and please hear me. I, again, I'm not casting any aspersions on Vista Grande. This is an amazing church. And the things that you're doing, again, the mission group that's going out, amazing. I'm just trying to present to you a reminder of the, the shifts that have taken place in the culture and the way that we have to approach our work in going out into the world again. The mission now is probably more important than any other time in our lives. That we as Christians need to demonstrate the love of Christ. Demonstrate in practical and tangible ways. And I think sometimes we overthink this. Can you make a plate of cookies? Can you be friendly to your neighbor? Can you learn your neighbor's name? Some of you know your neighbor, some of you don't. Can you, can you begin to start conversations in just building relationships so that the Lord is the one who can begin working on the heart? Because we, you know, we, don't, we don't save anybody. God does that work. But there's an obedience factor that we have to be a part of. It's the partnership God's called us into. Will we do the obedience things to be in the world, to be with those people that are different than us so that the Holy Spirit can do His work? The importance of the mission is great now. And this is why we must go. And the question I want to pose to you this morning is, will you go? Will you be that missionary?
Will you be God's ambassador in the world? Will you use what God has given you for His glory and trust Him with the results? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning as we pray.